0: Our scripture text today is Psalm 77. So let's hear the word of the Lord. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord in the night. My hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in anger, shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we read the cries of your word teach us to cry and hear our cry through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The book of Psalms is full of just tremendously majestic, lyrically inspiring, soul-stirring prayers but I would submit to you that Psalm 77 is not one of them. In fact, at first glance, it almost seems as if Psalm 77 doesn't belong in the Bible at all. After all, Asaph, the psalmist, prays some pretty irreverent, some pretty impious things, the sorts of things that many of us wouldn't expect a spiritually mature person to say to God, let alone one of the scribes of Scripture. I mean, when when we compare Asaph's prayer to other psalms, the contrast is really jarring. Let's just take Psalm 63, for example. Psalm 63 says, my soul thirsts for you. My soul clings to you. Psalm 77 says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied when I remember you. Psalm 77, when I remember God, I moan. Psalm 63, my mouth will praise you when I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Psalm 77, when I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my My eyelids open. Psalm 77 doesn't sound like it belongs in the Bible, and that is precisely why it's there. It's there because we wouldn't dare to pray this way unless God wrote it down and told us it's okay. It's there because it's profoundly honest about the depths of spiritual agony we experience but are often too proud or too afraid to admit it's there because God knows there are times in our lives when these seemingly unfaithful words are exactly what we need in order to keep holding on to him without letting go in a world where sadness is sometimes suffocating where our souls are sometimes shattered in a million pieces where living sometimes feels like dying Psalm 77 is a gift that shows us how to wrestle with God and with our own hearts on the prayerful path toward healing, toward hope, and toward the possibility of joy. And I want us to begin to appreciate the gift of this psalm by looking carefully at the four movements of the soul that take place in this prayer. There are four movements of soul the sorrow, the song, the search, and the story. So we're going to start with the first movement, the sorrow. The first verses of Psalm 77 describe the psalmist's pain. Now there are lots of laments, complaints, expressions of grief and sorrow in the psalms, but this is really a unique kind of agony. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Oftentimes in the Psalms, the psalmist honestly expresses his grief to God. But in a way that remains open, to the comfort that God can bring, and that actually actively pursues that comfort from God. But that's not the kind of suffering that Psalm 77 is describing. Asaph has experienced a pain so deep, so basic, so fundamental, that the idea of comfort and solace is almost offensive to him. My soul refuses to be comforted. My soul rejects the very idea that my sadness could ever end. In his agony, even the thought of God exacerbates the pain. It makes it worse. When I remember God, I moan. As if the mere suggestion of God activates the gag reflex of his soul. The energy required to direct his mind to God is so taxing, so burdensome, that his heart nearly passes out from exhaustion when I meditate, my spirit faints. His sleepless anxiety feels like God himself is prying his eyelids open. And the panic in his soul resists being captured in words, I am so troubled I cannot speak. When Asaph considers the days of old in verse 5, when he looks back on the happier times, it doesn't bring joy. It only intensifies his bitterness over what's been lost. It's a reminder of how far I've fallen. This is not a typical form of suffering. This isn't a common sadness. What the psalmist is describing is nothing short of living death. It's the agony of a shattered soul. Where a human being has experienced something so grievous, something so unexpectedly horrific that encouragement feels trivializing. And God... Who could have stopped it if he wanted to. Feels like a traitor. All too happy to stand by in heaven in all of his power and glory. And let me languish in death. Some of you have tasted that kind of despair. And some of you are in the grips of it. At this very moment. You've gotten the diagnosis that changes everything. You've been the victim of someone else's unspeakably sinful violence. You've sat through the ultrasound where they couldn't find a heartbeat anymore. You've picked up the phone call where it seemed as if your worst nightmares were breaking into reality like a flood. For some of you, the shattering of your soul wasn't a single tragic event. It was an entire childhood. Of weaponized religion that pressed into the core of your being the utterly unlivable claim that God will love you if you obey and you will never be good enough. So your whole life has been fueled by anxiety and shame trying to finally obey enough and believe enough to quiet the storm of condemnation in your soul until you finally reached your breaking point and realized you can't live like that one more second. And now the very sound of God's name stirs up all those distorted, toxic associations and your heart has an allergic reaction to anything that sounds remotely like the faith that you experienced before. My soul refuses to be comforted when I remember God, I moan. That's the kind of inconsolable, God-resistant sorrow that Psalm 77 describes. And that is a gift to us. This darkest of psalms is a gift to us in our sorrow, if only for the simple reason that it shows us we're not alone. In the pit, when the thought of God induces groaning, the sneaking suspicion begins to creep in that my anguish, which seems so unlike everyone else's, means that there's something wrong with me. And that isolating worry makes the darkness even deeper, doesn't it? But the Bible validates your sorrow. God put Psalm 77 in his word to show us that we're not alone. That the road of profound grief is well worn by his disciples. That he knows our souls will sometimes shatter. And at the same time, Psalm 77 gives us permission to express our anguish, to give our groans to God. Notice, Asaph doesn't just groan at the thought of God. In the psalm, he tells God about it. This psalm is his prayer. He can't bear to even meditate on God, but he makes the agony the prayer of his heart. And while we may be tempted to think that it's a pretty faithless example of prayer, it is in fact a profound act of faith to tell God in the darkness that the idea of Him hurts us. Why? Because the very practice of prayer is built on the assumption that God is there. That He's still listening and that He cares. When you feel like you can't consciously trust God in your sorrow, saying that to him in prayer is an implicit act of trust. It is embodied faith. It's the first step of faith when faith still feels impossible. Asaph says as much in verse 1. Translated literally, verse 1 says, in the choppy cadence of grief, my voice to God, and let me cry. My voice to God, and he will give ear to me. Asaph lifts his groaning about God to God in the confidence that God is there and will hear him. In your sorrow, when the very thought of God hurts, saying it to him is precisely the prayer of faith that God desires. And that first small step of faith can in fact be the first small step toward healing. Trauma researcher Bessel van der Kolk says that the single most important aspect of holistic mental health, of a meaningful and satisfying life, is the ability to feel safe with others. He writes that the relational security we need, quote, is not the same as merely being in the presence of others. The critical issue is reciprocity, being truly heard and seen by the people around us, feeling that we are in someone else's mind and heart. For our physiology to calm down, heal, and grow, we need a visceral feeling of safety. Now, what he's saying is that when our whole world has fractured before our eyes, and it seems that danger is on every side, the most basic thing we need is the visceral sense of safety, the taste of stabilizing security that comes from truly being heard and seen and held in someone else's mind and heart. Asaph doesn't just groan in the abstract presence of God. By making his groan his prayer, he expresses it in reciprocal communion with God. And in the process, his expression of agony becomes an embodied experience of being heard and seen by a God who holds him in his heart and mind, even when Asaph's heart and mind can't consciously hold on to God. Church, we have to have a category for this kind of sorrow, for ourselves and for others. And we have to grow up into the kind of community that gives wounded sufferers a place to give voice to their groaning when their souls still refuse to be comforted. There's no shortcut out of that kind of sorrow. There's no technique for quickly fixing a shattered soul. And hear me, if you're rooting your sense of self in your ability to fix someone, if you need to fill up your own internal emptiness by making yourself the hero of every sufferer's story, If you're not resting for your own security in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you'll never be able to sit in the waiting and truly listen and exhibit the patience that is necessary to offer security in communion to the deeply sorrowful. You'll inevitably default all too quickly to advice on how to fix the sadness. And you will make their souls groan. You see, Asaph was doing all the right things, wasn't he? Remembering God, meditating on the Lord, seeking God, but in his woundedness, that only made his soul recoil. If the only way we know how to respond to sorrow is to hasten it to comfort, we will suffocate sufferers and further alienate them. We will compound their grief, and wound their hearts even deeper. But Psalm 77 gives us a prayer script from God that shows us that sometimes all we can do is groan. And the most faithful thing we can do in that moment is to make the groan our prayer. The second movement is the song. The song. You see, Asaph doesn't stop with his groaning. Even though all the instincts of his soul find God insufferable and push him away, Asaph recognizes that he can't stay where he is forever. So he takes another step and he actively addresses his heart Let me remember my song in the night. Now that's the language of resolve, that's the language of commitment. Let me remember. And Asaph reaches back into the past and down into the hidden places of his heart to grab hold of a song from what now seems like another lifetime. A song that he sang about God and to God with the people of God. Let me remember my song in the night. A lifetime of corporate worship has prepared Asaph's soul for this dark night. For this moment. In this sleepless night. When he's so troubled he can't speak. When he can't articulate his pain. Or address God with his own original words. He borrows the words of the song hidden in his heart. When your soul has no voice. Yesterday's song can give you the words for today's cry. That's one of the gifts of song. Isn't it? Music gets into us. It becomes part of us. It bubbles out of us, some of us more than others, in a way that mere words simply don't and can't. And when we sing together as a community, when we do that here, we're not simply expressing what's in our hearts in the moment. We are equipping our hearts for the future when our souls will have gone silent in sorrow. The book of Psalms is in the Bible for a reason. God doesn't just want us to read his words. He wants us to sing his words. He wants to weave them through music into the very fabric of our souls. In the 150 songs of the Psalter, God gives us the words we need to express. Every conceivable human emotion in his presence. In the reciprocity of communion. A third of the Psalter is lament that gives us the grammar of grief. A quarter of the Psalter is justice songs that name the detestable violence of the world and cry out for God to make things right. There are a half dozen repentant songs that confess our sin and guilt and assure us of God's forgiveness when our shame threatens to choke us silent. The Psalms sing that God is the King and reigns forever. They rehearse all that He's done for us. They chronicle all of His characteristics. They delight in His glory. And when we can't muster a prayer, those songs are there to carry us, to give us language, to remind us of what is truly true. The songs of the Bible and the songs of the church are reservoirs of truth and hope that prepare us for the moments when we no longer know what's true and can't bring ourselves to hope. And that means that corporate worship, friends, is serious business. Sometimes corporate worship really is a matter of life and death. Corporate worship is a training ground for when our world falls apart. It is a munitions depot for the long battle of sorrow, because sometimes the most we can do is remember our song in the night. But something interesting happens when we sing an old song, doesn't it? Music has the power to take us back in time, to channel past experiences. When we sing Memories that are associated with, memories that are tied to the song, they flood back into the present. I think that's part of the reason why families sing familiar songs at the deathbed. The song isn't just a reminder of truths. The song isn't just a favorite tune from that person's life. No, the song brings a whole lifetime of shared memory and faith and love into the moment, into the room with us. A song has the power to help us remember, in some sense to relive, the joy, the fullness, the worship of past days and prior singings. The song in the night gives words when words have failed. It expresses emotions we're unable to name. It ministers the truth to resistant hearts. And it pulls the sparks of past experiences of worship into the praiseless present. Music is a powerful thing. It's no wonder that when he was dying, Jesus leaned on the songs of God at the cross. Have you noticed that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. It's a song of agony that transforms into a declaration of hope and deliverance. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Psalm 31. A song that surrenders to God in the confidence that God will ultimately deliver and vindicate and preserve the one who trusts him. Peter says in the New Testament that at the cross, Jesus entrusted himself into the hands of the God who judges justly. And how did he do that? How did Jesus do that? When he was being shattered, he was sustained by the music of God. He sang his song in the night. The third movement of the psalm is the search. The search. In his sorrow... Asaph resolved to remember his song and meditate in his heart, and it begins to stir something within him. Then my spirit made a diligent search. The song in the night, with its declarations about God and its conjuring of memory, prompts him to search a little deeper. And what does he do? He starts asking questions. He interrogates himself. He poses questions to his own heart. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? It's five questions, but there's really one basic question, isn't there? What's the question? Is the God of my song still the same God? Has he changed? Can he fail? Notice, he's not making claims, is he? It's still too early for that. His soul is still too raw. He's only asking questions. But with the questions, Asaph begins to confront his greatest fears, the the deep fears underneath his sorrow, head on. When we suffer unimaginably, there's the pain of the event, and then there's the pain, the fear, of what the event might mean, right? Right? Is all hope truly gone? Am I all alone? Has the God I thought I knew and trusted changed? So Asaph looks his fears square in the eye and he interrogates them. He starts reasoning with himself. Are my my fears true? Do they really make sense? He's coaxing his heart to work out God's character. He's drawing his soul to search out whether God just might be the kind of God who can still be depended upon in the middle of sorrow. The Psalms are full of questions that we need to learn how to ask ourselves in our grief. Full of them. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Psalm 42. That question pushes us to consider and identify and name the real source of our despair rather than simply riding the waves of our despair and being tossed to and fro. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27. That question demands that when things are scary, we genuinely assess whether the people and possibilities that we're afraid of really are any match for God. And in Psalm 77, Asaph shows us how to ask questions of our fears in a way that brings us face to face with the true character of God. Will he never show favor again? Has his ceaseless love ceased? Are his promises void? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut up his compassion forever? Those are the sorts of questions that no matter how you start asking them, when you say them out loud, they can only really have one answer, right? No. Of course God hasn't stopped being God. Of course he hasn't gone back on his word or contradicted the essence of his character. Of course not. But sometimes the only way to get to that answer is by verbalizing the fear, posing the questions to your heart, and reasoning your soul slowly, gently, back toward the faithfulness of God, the God of your song. With these questions, Asaph brings himself into a fresh confrontation with the unchanging dependability of God. And that's a confrontation that the Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards discussed and encouraged as well. In April 1738, he preached a sermon on Hebrews 13.8 called Jesus Christ the Same Yesterday, Today, and Forever. And in that sermon, he calls us to really do business with the Bible's claim that Jesus is utterly unchanging in his love and goodness and glory. Here's what he says. When you consider how great love he seemed to manifest when he yielded himself up to God a sacrifice for you in his agony and bloody sweat in the garden and when he went out to the place of his crucifixion bearing his own cross, you may rejoice that his love now is the same that it was then. And when you think, of past discoveries which Christ has made of himself in his glory and in his love to your soul, you may comfort yourself that he is as glorious and his love to you is as great as it was in the time of these discoveries. Christ can never fail. Your dear friends may be taken away and you suffer many losses, and at last you must part with all those things. Yet you have a portion, a precious treasure, more worth 10,000 times than all these things. That portion cannot fail you, for you have it in him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, what is he saying? When Jesus' love looked the deepest at the cross, it is as deep right now. He will not change. When your heart, in those Moments of revelation, when your heart experienced and saw Jesus' glory and felt his love toward you most clearly, his glory and his love have not wavered in the slightest because he cannot change. In Jesus you have a God, a lover, a beauty, a portion, and a treasure who does not, will not, cannot change. And Psalm 77 teaches us when our souls are barren, to tease out that truth by looking our fears square in the eye and questioning them so that our hearts can step into the joy of rediscovering all over again the only possible answer. And that brings us to the fourth movement, the story. The journey of this wrestling prayer has been long and hard, and church, we need to understand that for us, the first three movements may take weeks or months or sometimes even years. But in verse 10, the tone shifts, and Asaph's heart is finally able and ready to receive the comfort of God. And how does he do that? He rehearses the story of the Lord. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Now, at the beginning of the psalm, Asaph couldn't remember God or meditate on his work or find solace in the days of old. But did you hear what has happened Now that he's prayed his groaning and remembered his songs and searched out his questions, he's able to remember and meditate on the Lord's deeds of old. He uses all the same words, remember, meditate, the things of old. He can do all that in a way that far from turning his stomach now animates his hope. Now, Asaph never told us what song he remembered in the night, did he? He never named it. There was no footnote, but I think the end of the psalm actually tells us what it is. The first song that Israel ever sang as a nation was the song of the sea in Exodus 15. After God had rescued his people from Egypt and brought them through the sea and swept away the soldiers that were nipping at their heels, Moses led the people in a song. And what did he sing? It was a song about Yahweh's right hand. His holiness, his strength in moving water and deeps to redeem his people and work wonders. It was a song that asked, who is like God among the gods? And in Psalm 77, Asaph uses this song as a template, as the raw ingredients to rehearse for himself the saving grace of God. The end of Psalm 77 is like if a modern person were to start praying to God like this. Lord, your grace is amazing and the sound of it is like honey on my ears. I still marvel that you would rescue a sinner so wretched as myself. You found me when I wandered about lost, When my eyes were dim, you restored my sight. And I know when I've lived in your shining kingdom for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, I will still have just as many days to worship you in joy as when I started. Now, what was that? You could hear it, couldn't you? That was simply amazing grace turned into a prayer. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He turns his song in the night, Exodus 15, into a story that rehearses the works of God and sweeps the psalmist up into it. And something tremendous starts to happen. It took nine gut-wrenching verses to be able to rehearse the story, but when Asaph turns to remember the works of the Lord, it sparks a cascading celebration that keeps going, not for nine verses, but for 11. With each verse, it's as if Asaph is picking up speed, accelerating in his catalog of God's acts and attributes. And Asaph, who began in sorrow, is totally immersed in a worshipful recitation of God's power and mercy in deliverance. Totally immersed. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner observes that while the opening of Psalm 77 is totally focused on Asaph's sorrows, he says, quote, By the end of the psalm, the pervasive eye has disappeared, and the objective facts of the faith have captured all his attention. The psalmist hasn't lost his identity. He's not been erased, and he hasn't fixed his sadness. His circumstances haven't changed. But in the process of slowly turning his eyes off of the eye and onto his trustworthy, majestic, promise-keeping God, the psalmist finds himself. He discovers himself enveloped in a story where he can face the realities of his circumstances and sorrow with a renewed, securing conviction that I am not alone, that God is for me. The king who kept his promises in the past will certainly keep his promises to me as well. Maybe you noticed the psalm never actually resolves, does it? It's like was is there a, a verse 21? It ends with a random detail. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's not a real conclusion to a prayer. That's not a way you wrap up a song. Why does the psalm never resolve? Because the worship is the resolution. Asaph has been transported into a story of salvation and hope and his shattered soul has been invigorated and enlivened by the faithfulness of God. No tied up bows needed, no amens necessary because now Asaph is ready to take the hard, the difficult next step of living and facing the sorrows that are still there, the circumstances that are still there in faith and confidence and hope. The worship is the resolution. It's fitting, really, that Asaph, in the midst of his living death, praised the Exodus. Because the Exodus is a story of death and resurrection. The people of Israel went down into Egypt like a grave, and they were brought up through the Red Sea's waters of judgment and death into restored life in the presence of God. What is the Exodus? The exodus is the resurrection of Israel from the grave of their captivity. And for Christians, as we learn to rehearse the story of God to our sorrowful hearts, we have to tell an exodus story too. The gospels repeatedly present Jesus as the fulfillment of the exodus. They, they repeatedly frame Jesus as the God God. Of the Exodus. When John the Baptist laid eyes on the Son of God, he cried, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who is God, the Lamb of God who, like the Passover lamb, gives his life so that his people can go free. He fed thousands with bread in the wilderness, like Yahweh's manna from heaven. He walked on water, like God himself, who, as Psalm 77 says, his way was through the sea though his footprints were unseen. That's exactly what Jesus does. And when Jesus died on the cross, he went down into the captivity of the grave and came up through the waters of death to lead those who were enslaved to sin and death with him into the life-giving, joy-sustaining, soul-stabilizing presence of the Lord of glory. The Bible declares to you That everyone who follows Jesus in faith has followed him on his exodus into the eternal kingdom of his undying acceptance, approval, life, and love. The song of the sea is a foretaste of Jesus' gospel. And the song of Jesus is the exodus fulfilled. And when we whisper or shout the story, That Psalm 77 sings. We get to do it in a way that surpasses Asaph's wildest dreams. Because we get to rehearse the exodus of Jesus. Psalm 77 shows us how to pray with a shattered soul. Asaph teaches us to give voice to the groaning. Remember the song, interrogate our hearts, and rehearse the story of God, the story that is in reality the deep story of your life. And because Asaph wrote it down for us, Psalm 77 is here, a gift. Psalm 77 can be our song in the night. That is, we can do more than read and study and preach and hear the psalm. We can sing it so that the movements of Asaph's sorrowful soul can sink into our bones and become the music of our hearts. And that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to let the children come back in, and we're going to end uh, this time before the Lord's table um, in a way that's a little out of the ordinary. We are going to sing... Psalm 77 together. Yeah, let's bring them in.